0: Last week, Kathy and I had the opportunity to be in Western Pennsylvania. Our youngest son lives out there, and on Saturday, we were at an air show. But we were an air show at uh, Latrobe Airport, the Arnold, Arnold Palmer Airport, and the Air Force Thunderbirds were there. Um, my birthday was Saturday, and Father Day was Sunday, so I joked I got a six plane flyby salute that thundered the ground. It was absolutely incredible, and the um, the flying skill was also incredible to watch these planes as they performed in front of us. So, so to return uh, to the week back here at home and to uh, watch, along with the rest of the world, at the failure of technology, one trust it wasn't the failure of skill, as the world watched mesmerized by the drama of the deep sea submersible, the ocean gate titan with five passengers aboard we we watched and mourned as that ship was lost making a dive to see the wreckage of the titanic which had sunk on its maiden voyage hitting an iceberg and and went under in less than two hours on april the 15th in 1912 with a loss of 1500 passengers so at 13,000 feet below the surface of the ocean, the craft Titan was on its way to view that when it was lost. And, you know, until the debris, fi- debris field was found near the site of the wreckage of the Titanic, the world sort of held out hope that the Titan's passengers might be saved and at the same time experienced a sense of horror at The picture of these five folks in a basically a large cigar tube sinking slowly beneath the waves as as time and oxygen drifted away and slowly but surely came to an end Uh, the news that they had catastrophically imploded and that those on board suffered instantaneous death came as a Tragic end to hope, but also kind of a relieving end to those who were captive to that picture of claustrophobic horror. And I confess, in the, in the interim, before the news came, I couldn't help but, but think that the Titan situation is a fitting metaphor of human existence. You know, we are, every one of us, uh, passengers on a doomed cruise called LIFE. We are hopelessly traveling in spiritual darkness as our finite number of breaths and days slowly but surely ebb away. The writer of Ecclesiastes puts it this way. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. In chapter 3, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. You know, death is the reality of human life. It's the one event over which, in in the end, we have absolutely no control, from which we cannot escape. Uh, You know, as the eagles sing in Hotel California, you can check out, but you can never leave. And, and that inability to cope with the prospect of death, I think is captured by Woody Allen when he quipped, I'm, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But, but, and I put that in bold, bold caps in my notes, rather than being the end of life, there is a death which is not only the beginning of life, but it is a death which puts to death even death itself and that of course is the death of our Lord Jesus Christ Paul writes in first Corinthians 15 when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is, it is this death which Paul would have his readers consider as we look at today's passage. Now, our passage this morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. That's on page 1199 in your pew Bibles. I'm going to ask you to turn there. But... Rather than reading from the ESV, I want to read you that passage from the message, the Bible in contemporary language. So just kind of hold that there. Give me your attention here. Listen to uh, the words of the message, and then we'll go back to look at the passage bit by bit. But I I wanted this impact to to hit you. So the message beginning in verse 1 says, so what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we have left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father— so that we can see where we're going in our new grace-sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death— We also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him. But alive, he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly... And full-time, remember, you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time as we look at his word. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have spoken to us of things we could not know. You have shown us truths that we would never learn apart from your gracious revelation, ultimately, of course, in your Son. And so we pray today as we hear your word and consider it, that we might be drawn closer to you. We might realize anew the great gulf between our old way of death and the new way of life, and that we might live out into that hope with a joy that brings others to ask why. Father, help us to give an answer to those who ask a reason for that hope as we hear your word and as we live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, it it is is this death which Paul asks us to consider today. Now, it's interesting. In in Romans chapter 6, Paul uses the words die, died, dead, death, death and for good measure, he adds crucifixion, 19 times. There are 19 uses of the word death or associated concepts in 23 verses. Death is the focus of Paul's remarks here. But why is that? Well, in in the previous chapters of Romans... Paul has been both expounding and defending the gospel, the good news of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why, of course, by his death. He declares that the blessing of the gospel, back in chapter 4 and into 5, uh, comes not by works, not by circumcision, not by law, but only by grace through faith. And he uses the life of Abraham to teach that lesson to those who are challenging him. Now, that, that insistence that Paul made upon grace alone as the ground of justification received by faith alone has opened him to the charge of antinomianism, anti-against-nomi or noma law. You're against the law, Paul. You, you are undermining, you're undermining morals and promoting reckless sinning by insisting upon grace. And he reflects that in the questions that we see here. Verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the charge that some were making. Paul, you're preaching grace. You just want us to keep on sinning so everybody can see how great God is. And again, in verse 15 in the second half of the chapter, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Those are the kinds of accusations, the kinds of pressures against which Paul has to defend, not himself, but the very gospel. No, that is not the case. That is not the case. And, and Paul, in this chapter before us, he, he traces this kind of ignorance on the part of those who accuse him, especially w- with regard to Christian beginnings. He basically says, if you had understood what your conversion to Jesus really meant, if you had understood what your baptism—because that was the practice in the early church— belief in Christ was sealed, signed, demonstrated by baptism. If, if you understood what those things were, you would never even have asked the question, because understanding them means that you, you get grace. You, you get that there was an old life the one you had before conversion, before you were baptized into Christ, and there is now a new life, a life that comes after conversion and after baptism, and and therefore, the whole idea of sin as an active working presence in the lives of believers is just simply out of the question. If the death of Jesus is the focus of your life, in him, then, then there will be an absolute break between that old way of life, that, that way of living that marked all that we did in our old nature, and this new life, which again, only the death of Christ can both initiate and, and enable. We, we live under grace, says Paul in verse 14, because of the death of Christ. To the law. So let's look at that. If you have the bulletin insert, I've divided what I want to share with you this morning in, in three heads. You know, good reform preaching always has three points, even if you have to struggle to find them. Um, but Christ's death for us, Christ's life for us, and then our life for, or perhaps better, in Christ. So Paul says here in verse 1, Excuse me. Yeah, in verse 1. To the question, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Heaven forbid. What are you talking about? Are you crazy? How can he who died to sin still live in it? That in the death of Jesus for sin, those who are joined to him by faith are baptized the practice of the church are baptized into his death in other words you're walking around dead to your old life that's what happened jesus died and we with him says paul in verse 4 were buried into death so that just as jesus was raised from the dead to the glory of god by the glory of god we too might walk in newness of life And he continues in verse 5. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll be united with him in a resurrection like his. The horror of the cross and the agony of the passion of Jesus are not in and of themselves objects of our worship or adoration. They are simply the means through which Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth was put to death by the Roman you might say machinery of his day those were the means of his death as agonizing and as horrible as that death was it was the death itself of Christ really and truly the son of God came to earth to die for sinners it was that death which paid the penalty of sin so our old self, verse 6, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be, the, the Greek underneath there is basically rendered powerless. The, the body that we lived in, whose hands and feet and minds and mouth were in the service of sin, that body is no longer in charge. That body is powerless. That body is has been put to death. And again, it's not some piece of us. You know, there's not, there's not a part inside called the old nature that gets put to death and the rest of us live. No, it, it is our entire perspective on life. You might think of it as a worldview. You might think as, you know, life practice. But the whole of us as we are or were pre-conversion, before coming to know Jesus, that whole person is done. There is a new person. Paul says elsewhere, if anyone is in Christ, the Greek literally, behold, new creation. We are new in Christ. There's an old us that's gone. There's a new us that now lives. And Paul says in verse 6, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The one who has died has been set free from sin and, and the greek there really is the one who's died has been justified has been justified that is declared righteous before god on the basis of the blood of jesus being shed the the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world is the reason that we wouldn't be quote, enslaved or found guilty by. We are no longer under the penalty of sin. As Paul says in verse 7, for one who has died has been set free, has been justified from, is no longer under the penalty of sin. That's That's what Christ's death has done for us. The old one is gone, new life is here. And it's in that new life that we find ourselves... It leads us to, again, Christ's life for us, beginning with verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Now, Paul is not talking about the end of time. He's not talking about the new creation. I mean, that is there in the distance. But the immediate point of his words here is a life that we live on a day-to-day basis here and now. We will live. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. So his life goes on and on. Death no longer has dominion. There's no power of death to Jesus. He can't be put to death again. He has been raised from the dead as vindication, demonstration of his righteousness before the Father. It's a, if you will, almost his resurrection is a stamp of approval upon his perfectly sinless life by God the Father. And Paul says the death he died, he died to sin. In other words, the whole realm of sin, the power of sin, has been broken once for all, for Christ. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So there was a moment... When he died for sin, to sin, and there is now, if you will, not a moment that he lives, but a life that he lives. There is a moment-by-moment existence that he lives unto God. And as a consequence, Paul says, verse 11, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin in that same way. You're not going to die to sin over and over and over in terms of a capital S. And I think it's important to to make um, a distinction between sins, which I will call our individual acts of disobedience or rebellion. There's a difference between sins, which are things, and the power of sin, which is a spiritual force. Now, we do small s, sins because of the power of the capital S, sin. The whole world is caught in that capital S, sin, and the whole world, therefore, sins. But it is the power of sin that has been broken by Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, because of that, you're dead too. Dead to what? Dead to sin, that old you— doesn 't do what old you used to do it 's inconceivable you 're dead to that, and you are alive to God and therefore to live to God that you should reckon the verse eleven in our ESV uses the word consider um, count, reckon uh, the word is from accounting in in the ancient Greek world, so you know you jot it up, add them up, you know put the uh, Equal sign, it equals deadness. Why? Not because you and I no longer breathe, not because you and I no longer walk around, but because that old person, that old way of thinking, that old perspective on things is put to death once and for all in the death of Christ. And now we are to consider, reckon, count, account ourselves alive to Christ. That, that, real freedom in this world can only be found in a relationship to the God who created us. What were we made for? We were made to serve him. I used to do orientation for new employees at Ware, and one of the things I would raise to them, at the beginning they might have been in dietary, they might have been in nursing, it didn't really matter. They were starting a new job, maybe a new career there, to talk about purpose. And I illustrated that by saying, you know, I'm a deer hunter, grew up in a hunting family, comes November, you know, Thanksgiving weekend, you pull the gun off the shelf or out of the closet or wherever it was, and you sight it in. And you don't do that by going out and, you know, shooting a hole in the side of grandpa's barn and then painting a target around it. Have the target first, (laughs) aim the gun, pull the trigger. How'd that work? Are you any good at this? You know, do you hit what you're aiming at? And if the answer is, well, I wasn't aiming at anything, well, congratulations, you hit nothing, really. But if you have a target, you can assess. And the world today lacks a target. What's your purpose for being here? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. You know, what what gives you life? Mm, I don't know. And it might be something short, like, you know, being with my friends, some, some short, passing, transitory kind of moment or experience. But that's not life. That's not life. That, that goes away. That's gone. What's your purpose? And apart from a purpose, how do we know if our lives are being spent as they're supposed to? If there's no target on the wall that you can adjust your aim, how do you know that you're doing it? Well, and unless we have a relationship with the God who created us which is what we are made for we will not ultimately have a sense of purpose and whether that's short run or long run there's no purpose in life because that life is actually death and our death life needs to die so that our grace life can live and Paul says therefore Our life in Christ or our life for Christ, verse 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Okay? You might put a capital S there. Don't let the power of sin, it's no longer the boss, reign to make you obey. And that now, verse 13, is down to the nitty gritty. What do we do to sin? We use our members, we use our fingers, we use our feet. We use our mind, we use our words. We use our thoughts. What do we do to sin? We we have members that get enlisted. And Paul says, don't get drafted or even enlist in sin. But that's unrighteousness. And that you are dead to. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. In other words, you're new. You've got a whole new purpose. You've got a, a whole new energy. You've got a whole new life. And that life is on the basis of death. You have been brought from death to life, and now, therefore, present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. There's a sign somewhere along the way as I drive to work in the morning. It says, everyone can afford the gift of kindness everyone can afford the gift of kindness that is using our members hands feet mouth thoughts our checkbooks whatever as instruments of righteousness and Paul says why verse 14 because because Sin doesn't have Capital S isn't the boss anymore. You're not under law, but under grace. Now, I want to say just a couple things in, in applying this passage today. First, back to the point of, of purpose. J.R.W. Stott says in his commentary on this, only by bowing the knee to God can a person become what God originally intended that person to be—righteous and holy. The outcome of these—jumping to the end of the chapter—is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Only by bowing the knee to God can you become what God intended you to be—righteous, sinless, and holy, that is, being sanctified. Now, The reality is that you and I live, as Paul describes at the end of chapter 7 in Romans, we live in a world where we, never mind what you read in the paper or see in this, we don't do what we know we ought to do, and we do what we know we ought not do. That's just true of us in this world, that, that though we do not submit ourselves to sin, capital S, We nevertheless commit sins. And on the basis of those sins, we can beat ourselves up. You know, Lord, just hold on a minute. I'm going to whip myself here into shape, and then I'll be back. That's often the way we think. That's often the way we think. Um, My wife gave me this little book of Watchman's Knees. She and her group had read through it, The Normal Christian Life, And Watchman Nee makes a comment on this very mindset. He says, I approach God through his merit alone and then never on the basis of my attainment, never, for example, on the ground that I have been extra kind or patient today or that I have done something for the Lord this morning. I have to come by the way of blood the blood, every time. I may be mistaken, he says, but I feel very strongly that some of us are thinking in terms such as these. Today, I have been a little more careful. Today I have been doing a little better. This morning I have been reading the word of God in a warmer way, so today I can pray better. Or perhaps, today I have had a little difficulty with the family. I began the day feeling very gloomy and depressed. I'm not feeling too bright now. It seems there must be something wrong. Therefore, the way is not clear for me to approach God. Now, that may resonate with some of you, and I suspect that it does because it's kind of human. he goes on to say, what, after all, is your basis of approach to God? Do you come to him on the uncertain ground of your feeling, the feeling that you may have achieved, or I would add, or failed in something for God today? Or is your approach based on something far more secure, namely the fact that the blood has been shed and that God looks on the blood and is satisfied? Well, I think you can see easily the, the blood is the death of Jesus, right? Has Jesus died on the cross for sins? That's the only question, not how am I feeling, not how did I do today. You know, not am I going to be better tomorrow or was, you know, like some days in golf you go out and you just absolutely stink. And the next day you go out and you just do even worse. You know, <laughs> you're, you're not going to shoot, you know, a birdie round. It's not going to happen. You give up on golf? No, you still enjoy it. So do you give up on yourself because your feelings are up and down like a cork bobbing on the ocean? No, the answer is the death of Christ has paid the penalty of sin. His death conquered death. And my death with Christ in his sacrifice gives me new life through his death, through his resurrection. I now have access to God above, and I have that access by his grace, through faith. Paul says you are not under law, but under grace. And he has argued, again, in, question, in, in chapters 4 and 5, exactly what, what faith is. How is Abraham, in his case, justified? And he argues by faith. Calvin writes regarding this whole argument, if you will. Let us remember that the condition of all of us is the same as that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just. We are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious and kind to us. Outward judgments threaten his wrath upon us. What then is to be done? Says Calvin, we must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. In the face of the evidence of my own life, I cling to Christ's death and his resurrection because sin shall not have dominion. I am not under law, but under grace. So I want to finish simply by reading the rest of the chapter to you in the words of the message. Having kind of gone through it as we have, I think this may strike you somewhat differently. You can follow, but the ESV may not be useful. Just hear the words of the message. So, since we're out from under the old tyranny, does that mean we can live any old way we want? Since we're free in the freedom of God, can we do anything that comes to mind? Hardly. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. But offer yourself to the ways of God, and the freedom never quits. All your lives, you've let sin tell you what to do. But thank God you started listening to a new master, one whose commands set you free to live openly in his freedom. I'm using this freedom language because it's easy to picture. You can readily recall, can't you, how at one time, the more you did just what you felt like doing, not caring about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became and the less freedom you had. And how much different is it now as you live in God's freedom, your lives healed and expansive in holiness? As long as you did what you felt like doing, ignoring God, You didn't have to bother with right thinking or right living or right anything for that matter. But do you call that a free life? What did you get out of it? Nothing you're proud of now. Where did it get you? A dead end. But now that you've found out you don't have to listen to sin tell you what to do and have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you, what a surprise. A whole, healed, put-together life right now with more and more of life on the way. Final two verses. Work hard for sin your whole life, and your pension is death. Work hard for sin your whole life, and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our Master. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, what a great salvation is ours by your grace. And we rejoice in the hope that is ours because that hope is anchored in Christ's death and resurrection. Once for all, secured, in history, in time, in space. And now he's at your right hand, interceding for us, giving us power to live as we truly ought in obedience, in fellowship, in joy in your presence. So I pray, Lord, as we go from this place today, it might be with that joy bubbling forth that we would be a light in the darkness of this dead world, declaring the glory of him who called us out of darkness into light. We pray these things in his name, the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.